0: Trust the fungus. Trust the fungus. Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac in the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten and the unforgettable. Today, we are going to take a look at select films of the recently rejuvenated genre of video game based movies. With the recent success of both Detective Pikachu and Sonic the Hedgehog, we're going to take a look at films of this subgenre over the course of the past three decades. We've got a wide range of films on the docket. We're starting with the Super Mario Brothers movie, followed by Street Fighter 2, the animated movie, the 1995 classic Mortal Kombat, the 2002 Resident Evil movie, 2019's Detective Pikachu, and this year's Sonic the Hedgehog. Without further ado, let's get into the movies. We got movies! was ruled by dinosaurs. They were big, so not a lot of people went around hassling them. Actually, no people went around hassling them because there weren't any people yet, just the first tiny mammals. Basically, life was good. You know, it just don't get no better than this. Yeah. Then something happened. A giant meteorite struck the Earth. Goodbye, dinosaurs. But what if the dinosaurs weren't all destroyed? What if the impact of that meteorite created a parallel dimension where the dinosaurs continue to thrive and evolve into intelligent, vicious, aggressive beings? Just like us. And hey, what if they found a way back? Mario and Luigi are down-on-their-luck plumbers. Whenever a break comes their way, the job is handled by a competing plumbing operation owned by Scapelli. Scapelli. They beat us to it again. They took our jobs! No good fortune seems to be coming their way anytime soon. Daisy is a student archaeologist who is overseeing a discovery of dinosaur bones. She has a meet-cute with Luigi, and Luigi is immediately smitten with her. Mario, always the reliable wingman, gives Luigi a hint to invite Daisy to dinner. After a series of circumstances, Luigi and Mario follow Daisy to a dystopian wasteland known as the Mushroom Kingdom. The kingdom is under the rule of Koopa. Koopa hopes to get a piece of a meteorite that will combine both Brooklyn and the Mushroom Kingdom. Daisy is the key for making this possible. The production history is worth taking a look at. It was originally going to be a fantasy film taking place in the world of the games. Tom Hanks was eyed for the role of Mario. Then things changed into the film we have now. Bob Hoskins, fresh off of the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, was cast as Mario. The post-apocalyptic set design can be attributed to David Snyder, who worked on Blade Runner. Yes, this movie gets a lot of hate, some of it deserving due to its failure as a video game adaptation. It has some callbacks to the games, but the Blade Runner approach to the Mushroom Kingdom feels out of place. The film had numerous rewrites with changes occurring every day. It was this hectic direction that led to Hoskins and Leguizamo drinking on set. The husband and wife director team of Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel faltered as the project continued. Dennis Hopper's limited experience with special effects hindered the production. After his retirement, Bob Hoskins referred to Super Mario Bros. as the worst movie he's ever worked on. Now let me tell you why this film works for me. As a video game adaptation, it fails. But as a piece of 90s science fiction, it's a curiosity. Think about the sci-fi offerings of the 1990s. We started the decade with Back to the Future Part 3. The decade ended with the beloved trio of The Matrix, Galaxy Quest, and The Iron Giant. In the years between, we had creature features, anime, full moon studios, blockbusters, indie features, international films. Never were there so many options for consumption of science fiction. The 90s stand as the less experimental period for the genre. Despite hating working on this film... Both Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo elevate the material handed to them for Super Mario Brothers. Leguizamo and Samantha Manthus as Daisy, which is accurate to the games, have some awkward and believable chemistry as young lovers. The film's presentation of the relationship between Mario and Luigi is actually surprisingly effective. You don't know who your mother and your father are neither? No, what do you mean neither? Because Mario here brought me up. He's been my, my mother my whole life, hey? Now I have my father my father. He's been my father, my uncle, my brother everybody. Instead of being siblings, we get the impression that Luigi was a kid on the street and Mario took him under his wing, adopting him. This dynamic works out well. Dennis Hopper hams it up as Koopa, giving the character Trump characteristics, whether it's the hair or the bravado, but is entertaining nonetheless. He's commanding for his scenes, chewing the scenery and loving every minute of it. The scenes he shares with the Koopa cousins, Spike and Iggy, has him come off as the proverbial Mo Howard of the trio. The music by Alan Silvestri has a bit of a Danny Elfman bounce to it, which feels out of place for the gritty tone of the film. The main theme would have fit had the original fantasy elements stayed in. Sylvester has a number of iconic scores under his belt. Back to the Future, Predator, The Avengers are only a small sample of an impressive discography. However, the original theme by Koji Kondo is used for the opening credits. The licensed music for the soundtrack is nothing short of amazing. Queen, The Pointer Sisters, Joe Satriani, Divinals covering Roxy Music, Was Not Was, and Us Three make for an eclectic mix. Frankie Yankovic's cover of Somewhere My Love remains one of the most recognizable tracks from the soundscape. The special effects are decent considering this film was released shortly before Jurassic Park. The Morphean effects haven't aged well, but play into the cartoonish nature of the source material. The Yoshi animatronics are a strong case for practical effects over CGI. If you can approach the film from the view of it as a science fiction film instead of a video game adaptation there is much to appreciate in the super mario brothers a cast that treats the material better than it has any right to great soundscape and solid visuals Uh, this is a movie that is better than you may remember Two, the animated movie opens with a bout between Ryu and Sagat. The match is in the midst of a thunder and lightning rainstorm. Unbeknownst to them, the fight is being monitored by a droid that is measuring the combat ratings of both. Ryu defeats Sagat in a manner that is a nice reference to the intro animation to Super Street Fighter II. In public, the justice minister is assassinated by Cammy, an MI6 agent that has been missing. Interpol agent Chun-Li believes she was under my control, and somehow M. Bison is responsible. Chun-Li wants to bring on the reluctant Guile, who has history with Bison. Unfortunately, Bison has eyes on Ryu, particularly after the decisive victory over Sagat, and high combat ratings from the observing robots. However, Ken, a fellow student with Ryu, may show to be a fitting substitute since he has the same training and skill set as Ryu. Between the 1994 Jean-Claude Van Damme film and this, the Street Fighter II animated movie is the superior film. The animated movie fixes many of the mistakes of the live-action film. Ryu is the lead character, not Guile. Not every character plays a significance in the narrative, such as Zangief and Blanca, who appear in the animated film for only a few seconds. The anime style makes the hyper-realistic moves of the characters much more believable instead of in a live-action setting, a setting that uses a flash uh, flash frame for Ryu's Hadouken. The fights in this film are much more memorable. The battle between Fei Long and Ryu is pretty brutal. The film's best set piece has to be Chung Lee against Vega. In fact, how much actual fighting was in the live-action Street Fighter movie? Not a whole hell of a lot from what I remember. One element that got a chuckle out of me was the film following the Japanese lore of the game, while the dialogue catered to the Americanized lore. Okay, try to keep up with me here. In Japan, M. Bison is known as Vega. Vega is originally known as Claw, but changed to Balrog in Japan. Then you had M. Bison with M standing for Mike for the Japanese edition. Due to American copyright, names had to be switched around. Mike Bison in Japan became Balrog. Balrog in Japan became Vega. Vega in Japan became M. Bison. And that's all I have to say about that. Tetsuya Kumura, Yuki Toriyama, and Matthias Weber provide the original music for the film... Yet, the early 90s alternative rock stole the show. Alice in Chains, KMFDM, Korn, and Silverchair contributed licensed music to the film. I'm not familiar with a lot of the voice acting talents except for two. You have Steve Blum, the video game equivalent of Hugh Jackman. The man's been voicing Wolverine as far back as the X-Men Legends series. I hope this hurts. So long, chump. In the Street Fighter II anime, he voiced a number of characters, including T-Hawk. Then there's Brian Cranston. Yes, that Brian Cranston. You're goddamn right. Many don't know before he broke out in an episode of The X-Files, Cranston did a lot of voice work and bit parts. He was on Airwolf, Hill Street Blues, Jake and the Fat Man, The Flash... The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Murder, She Wrote, and Babylon 5. Now everyone knows him as Walter White and for being the best subplot in the 2014 Godzilla movie that was stupidly cut short. Street Fighter II, the animated movie, is so good it makes the live-action film obsolete. The characters are done right. The action is fluid and visually dynamic. There's the soundtrack. This is definitely one to watch. (coughs) (laughs) Come <laughs> Mortal Kombat is a fighting tournament that pits the greatest warriors on Earth against the champion of the realm known as Outworld. Under the guidance of Raiden, the god of thunder and lightning, the hope of Earth lies in the trio of Liu Kang, Sonya Blade, and Johnny Cage. The overseer of the tournament, Shang Tsung, has his collection of warriors with the likes of Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Reptile, Kano, and Prince Goro. Fortunately, the Earth combatants have an unlikely ally in Princess Katana. After nearly three decades and many attempts to bring video game source material to movie screens, Mortal Kombat is still a fantastic piece of work. The characters are loyally adapted to the film. The fight sequences are well choreographed and stylishly edited. Johnny Cage battling Scorpion as well as Liu Kang versus Reptile stand out as the best in the film. Mortal Kombat has succeeded where many, many films have failed by having respect for the source material. The techno soundtrack helps the film maintain its high energy pace. George S. Clinton provided the music score, not to be confused with the George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelics. Clinton's career goes all the way back to John Waters and Multiple Maniacs. The artists featured on the soundtrack added to the tone of the film as well as to the success. The Mortal Kombat soundtrack went platinum. You have Gravity Kills, KMFDM, Orbital, Fear Factory, and Typo Negative providing a high-energy sound that fit the spirit of the video game and the action of the film. I swear everyone in my grade school had this soundtrack in their collection. One of the film's strongest aspects is the simple plot, something the video games were often lacking. Fans will recognize a number of cues the plots of Mortal Kombat takes from the plot of the Bruce Lee classic, Enter the Dragon. Liu Kang and Johnny Cage were playing as surrogates for Bruce Lee and John Saxon. The Johnny Cage-Goro fight is similar to the Roper-Bolo fight. Both films center on a fighting tournament that's a cover for a much bigger operation, be it a drug operation or another dimension. It works for the film. We came for the fights, not for the story. Director Paul W.S. Anderson garnered much respect for his lovingly crafted work on Mortal Kombat. After the likes of Street Fighter and Double Dragon, a video game-based film of this quality was a sign of hope. It felt like a legitimate movie and not a cynical cash grab using a popular franchise. The performances were appropriate by the cast for their characters, while Christopher Lee's comedic take on Raiden fell out of place, the other actors more than make up for it. I wish he channeled more Connor McCloud in his turn in, as Raiden, but oh well. Robin's show, with his roots in Hong Kong cinema, was a perfect fit for Liu Kang. He would appear in direct-to-video sequels for Death Race, in addition to other video game movies like Street Fighter, The Legend of Chung Li, as well as DOA, Dead or Alive. Lyndon Ashby gives Johnny Cage much ego, but not too much that we hate him. Ashby would make a career in direct-to-video sequels to films like Wild Things, Mean Girls, and Anaconda. Bridget Wilson has the right look for Sonya and a badass attitude to boot. She appeared in a number of cult classics and genre films, Billy Madison, I Know What You Did Last Summer, the 1990 remake of House on Haunted Hill, Last Action Hero, and much more. Talisa Soto is lacking a personality as Katana. Soto has the honor of being a Bond girl, having been featured in the Timothy Dalton entry License to Kill. She also played the comic heroine Vampirella in a 1996 adaptation. The villains proved to be entertaining in their own right. Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa plays Shang Soon with the -the over-the-top aggression Lace with Camp. He comes off as a martial arts palpatine. The late Trevor Goddard played a lighthearted take on Kano. He's still vicious, but he's very amusing. Keep an eye out for John Carpenter regular Peter Jason in a bit part. The video game based films having a growing number of misses than hits. The ones that work are all the more noteworthy. Awesome cast, cool soundscape and a love for the video game source material still makes Mortal Kombat one to love. Yeah, after all these years, it's still that good of a movie. Resident Evil opens with an outbreak in an underground facility known as the Hive. The Hive is owned by Umbrella Corporation. To prevent the outbreak from spreading, the Hive AI, known as the Red Queen, seals the facility, leaving all the personnel to die. A woman named Alice awakens in a mansion. She dresses and is soon attacked by a man, but saved by a group of commandos. Turns out Alice's attacker is a police officer from the Raccoon City PD. The commandos have been sent in on behalf of Umbrella. The situation below involves finding the scientific team as well as retrieving an antivirus to use against the T-virus if needed. What follows is a dumbed-down retread of the original Resident Evil Games plot. The squad is a surrogate for the Stars team as they encounter zombies, zombie dogs, and lickers, which are substitutes for the hunters. The developmental hell period for Resident Evil is interesting. Constantine Films bought the film rights to Resident Evil in 1997. Alan B. McElroy was the first to write the screenplay for the film adaptation. His previous credits include Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, the film adaptation of Spawn with Michael Jai White, and Left Behind with Kirk Cameron. A job's a job, I guess. McElroy's script was rejected despite closely following the plot and featuring the monsters from the game. After directing the Resident Evil 2 commercial for Japan, zombie film icon George A. Romero was tapped to write a draft. Romero used a recording of the gameplay as a resource for his script. Romero's script would be rejected because it would have been rated NC-17. There would be another script from Jamie Blanks, director of the film Urban Legend, His script was reported to follow the exact plot beats of the game, but also rejected. Finally, it was Paul W.S. Anderson that was hired due to his success in 1995 with Mortal Kombat, as well as the positive reception for his sci-fi horror classic, Event Horizon. I was not a fan of this film when I saw it in theaters in 2002. I felt it failed to grasp the tension and sense of dread of the game. Instead, you get zombie ambushes, shootouts, a sequence that heavily borrowed from Cube, martial arts, Matrix wire foo against zombie dogs, and a fight on the train that attempts to channel the spirit of the climax of Resident Evil 2. After Resident Evil Apocalypse, I officially tuned out of the live-action offerings for Resident Evil. Mark Bell, Trammy and Marilyn Manson provided the music score, I remember the review in the local Buffalo Rag, Art Voice, that movie critic M. Faust compared their score to the work of Goblin. That sealed the deal in me purchasing a ticket to this film. Yet, the music comes off more like John Carpenter. Now, I could hum for you any number of Goblin tracks. If you asked me to hum the theme to this Resident Evil movie, I couldn't do it. Goblin was able to provide many unforgettable themes and music pieces, which is more than I could say for Beltrami and Manson. Mila Jovovich plays the heroine Alice. Don't get me wrong, but Mila can be good. I liked her in Dazed and Confused, she was awesome in The Fifth Element, but in Resident Evil, it screams nepotism, considering her boyfriend was the director. Michelle Rodriguez was only a year removed from her star-making turn in The Fast and the Furious, Rodriguez does the tough chick trope that honors a past example like Jeanette Goldstein's Private Vasquez from Aliens. Colin Salmon doesn't get much to do as the commando leader. To see him really shine, go check out Punisher Warzone. I just couldn't care for what Anderson did to the Resident Evil franchise, but they have their audience. Uh, Not only did uh, Capcom make the best Street Fighter movie, but do yourself a favor and watch the Capcom produced CGI Resident Evil films. They stick to the universe of the games and do justice for the characters. And you can bet I'll review those in the near future. Tim is a young man who gave up his aspirations to be a Pokemon trainer in favor of a career as an insurance adjuster due to the death of his mother. This trauma caused a chasm between Tim and his father, Harry. The police of Rhyme City informed Tim his father died in a car accident. Rhyme City is a metropolis where humans and Pokemon live side by side. While collecting his father's effects at an apartment, Tim meets Pikachu. Pikachu. Tim is able to understand Pikachu's language, all while other people only hear the signature, Pika, Pika! Tim and Pikachu have to go through the criminal underbelly of Rhyme City. There are underground Pokemon fights, but bigger concerns regarding Tim's father come to light, and hints of a conspiracy involving Clifford Industries, whose owners are also the governing officials of Rhyme City. I went into Detective Pikachu with low expectations. From the trailers, all I expected was a Pokemon version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I got that, but also got some of the social commentary akin to Zootopia. I thoroughly enjoyed this film, despite not being big into the Pokemon gaming franchise and only having a passing interest in Pokemon Go. Five visual effects companies worked on this film, yet maintain a consistency of quality. Pikachu was a mix of both puppetry and CGI, much like Rocket Raccoon for the Guardians of the Galaxy. That palpable physicality added much to the immersion of the film. Director Rob Letterman has given a mixed bag of films. I was put off by his handling of Gulliver's Travels with Jack Black, yet I loved Monsters vs. Aliens. Detective Pikachu puts him back into my graces. Well done. Ryan Reynolds brings the Deadpool snark proper with the PG Detective Pikachu as opposed to the cynical PG-13 money grab of Once Upon a Deadpool. I wasn't familiar with Justice Smith, but I was impressed with his dramatic chops as Tim and being a good straight man to Reynolds as the comedic foil. Catherine Newton as Lucy Stevens felt passive, She helped push the plot forward after a number of the set pieces. Bill Nighy and Ken Watanabe are fine in supporting roles. Detective Pikachu left a solid impression on me. Between this, uh, as well as the final film reviewed on this episode, and the upcoming Illumination Super Mario Bros. film, we could be on the verge of something big, something big and Awesome. Hedgehog is forced to leave his home when attacked by a group of Echidna warriors. He is given a bag of rings by his guardian, Longclaw the Owl. These rings allow him to travel to other planets and dimensions. Sonic escapes through one of the rings, just as Longclaw is overtaken by the Echidnas. Over the next decade, Sonic is enjoying a life in secrecy, yet he reaches a point where he longs for friendship. He becomes a local legend thanks to sightings by the town drunk of Green Hills. The sheriff of Green Hills, Tom Wachowski, becomes an idol of sorts, even being referred to as the Donut Lord. One night, Sonic is so distraught over his loneliness he knocks out the power of the Pacific Northwest. The U.S. Department of Defense reluctantly sends in Dr. Robotnik. In a moment of panic, Sonic loses his rings and needs Tom to get him to San Francisco to retrieve them. Both end up in the crosshairs of Robotnik. Sonic the Hedgehog stands as another successful attempt at bringing a beloved video game IP to screens. Only within a year after the previously released Detective Pikachu, fans couldn't be happier. Never has this happened before that two good video game based movies were released so soon together. One can't talk about this movie without two things. One, the awful trailer that came out with the worst looking design for Sonic. He was absolutely atrocious. The media does its usual thing and smeared the fan base for complaining about the design, calling them entitled. This was a repeat of the narrative going all the way back to Ghostbusters 2016. In episode 3 of my podcast, I go into detail on the media's war with the various fandoms. When word spread that the movie was successful, this put a damper on their narrative. It turns out that listening to the fans actually yielded financial success for a film. And then there's the petty bitterness on the part of some obsessed Birds of Prey fans. A few fans of the Harley Quinn spinoff were spreading lies and trying to sabotage Sonic the Hedgehog. They accused the film of homophobia and racism in order to try to get more people to see Birds of Prey. Uh, clearly, uh, these people didn't see the movie, and people didn't flock, for lack of a better term, to Birds of Prey. In the end, Birds of Prey will be remembered as a disappointment for Warner Brothers, while *Sign the Hedgehog will be a smash hit for Sega Studios. So, uh, any chance we'll get that crazy taxi movie that's been stuck in developmental hell for the last 15 years? I can't speak enough for the amazing work done on Sonic by Tim Miller and Blur Studios. The attention to detail and the expressiveness of the character was fantastic. Miller and Blur were a big part of the first Deadpool movie, and there was a noticeable drop in quality in Deadpool 2 particularly in the lack of expressiveness of Deadpool's eyes. Jeff Fowler made his feature film debut with Sonic the Hedgehog. Talk about making a good first impression. Fowler knows what he's doing, so let's see where we go from here. Ben Schwartz nails Sonic the Hedgehog. He gives the character a sweeping affection and interest in things that works for an extraterrestrial. Can't say I'm too familiar with his work, but I'm sure he's recognizable to fans of Parks and Recreation, as well as BoJack Horseman. James Marsden plays Tom Wachowski, the sheriff of Green Hills. Marsden has great chemistry with both Schwartz as Sonic and Tika Sumpter as Maddie. Marsden may be best known for Cyclops in the early X-Men films, but that was a rubbish performance. Uh, I recommend uh, Sex Drive or Westworld for better examples of Marsden as an actor. Last but not least, Jim Carrey. This is the Jim Carrey people my age have been pining for to come back. This is Ace Ventura Jim Carrey. The Mask Jim Carrey. Dumb and Dumber Jim Carrey. In Living Color Jim Carrey. He steals the film as Robotnik. I thoroughly enjoyed Sonic the Hedgehog for the family-friendly video game-based movie it was, Solid cast. The work done on Sonic was impeccable. I'm looking forward to what Sonic has up their sleeve for future films. And we can only hope for a Smash Bros. cinematic universe. That's a good way to cause Disney some sleepless nights. And that wraps up this episode of Mac in the Movies. Thanks for listening. Next time, I'm going to tackle the film adaptation of the Alan Moore comic, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as well as pitch how the comic can get a cinematic reboot. That will be on Monday, March 23rd. If you enjoy this content and would like to see the program grow, a one-time donation via PayPal would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Any questions or inquiries can be sent to my Gmail. All of that in the description below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Mac in the Movies. Take care, folks.